There are several good reasons to watch Bernardo Bertolucci's last tango in Paris, but not all of them make for palatable viewing. Highly controversial when it was released in 1972, it tells of Paul, played by Marlon Brando, who meets Jeanne, played by Maria Schneider, when she goes to rent an apartment in the 19th arrondissement. Although they have only just met and have not yet introduced themselves, within minutes they are having sex on the floor of the empty rooms. The tryst resumes and continues over the next few days, during which Paul struggles to deal with the trauma of his wife Rosa's recent suicide, while Jeanne is unsure of her relationship with her boyfriend Tom. Labelled pornographic and banned in several countries, Italian courts ruled all copies of the film be burned, while Bertolucci himself was handed a suspended prison sentence and barred from voting for five years. Yet almost in equal measure, it was lionised by critics who considered it a cinematic milestone. Writing in The New Yorker, Pauline Kael rhapsodised for 3,600 words, saying it was as culturally important as Igor Stravinsky's ballet, The Rites of Spring. Quote, Last Tango in Paris has the same kind of hypnotic excitement as The Rites, the same primitive force and the same thrusting, jabbing eroticism. Maybe we can come without touching. Come without touching? Okay. You concentrating? Mm-hmm. You could come yet? <laughs> no. Huh? Difficult. I didn't either yet. Last Tango in Paris is decidedly unerotic, deliberately cold, and defiantly unromantic. There is plenty of nudity and a lot of sex, but precious little of it is designed to be in any way arousing. Instead, it is a sharp-edged examination of trauma in the wake of death, deception within relationships, and the complex suggestion that love is a social, if not bourgeois construct, which forms the basis of colonialism. But it wasn't just liberals who praised and conservatives who condemned it. Now, the National Organization for Women saw the film as yet another flattening example of a patriarchy that stretched all the way from Wall Street and the Supreme Court into marital bedrooms and women's bathrooms. Now saw the film as a violation, in particular, the scene where Paul anally rapes Jeanne. While there is no question that the act itself was simulated on screen, Schneider was not informed of what was going to happen until moments before filming. The result is a sight of an actress clearly and deeply distressed by what is happening to her. As uncomfortable as that was for several viewers in 1972, the notoriety returned in 2006 when Schneider blamed the event on a long-term depression from which she never really recovered. Here is Bertolucci in 2013, two years after Schneider had died of breast cancer, speaking to Twan Hoyce on the Dutch TV show College Tours at the Rotterdam International Film Festival. Do you regret the fact that you have shot the scene like you did? No, but I feel guilty. I feel guilty, but I do not regret. I wanted her to react and she felt humiliated. If it goes on air, she shouts, no, no. And I think that she hated me and also Marlon because we didn't tell her that uh, there was this that detail of uh, the butter used as a lubricant. Um, and uh, I still feel very guilty for that. Warped as Bertolucci's decision was, 
it does feed into what he wanted to explore. Trauma, deception and love as a construct. And within those contexts, Last Tango in Paris contains several strong examples of exemplary filmmaking. First, let us consider trauma. In the wake of his wife's suicide, Paul is left seeking answers as to why she ended her life. The apartment where he encounters Jeanne is so sparse as to be completely unfurnished. Just a ladder leans up against one of the walls and presumably a piece of furniture sits nearby. I say presumably because a large white sheet is draped over it and we never get to see what is underneath. Legend has it that when Bertolucci first arrived on set, he asked production designer Ferdinando Scarfiotti what was under the sheet. Scarfiotti replied he was not sure, but said it might be Paul's id. According to Freud, who appropriated the term from the Latin, which means literally it, the id is where our primitive, instinctive behaviours, hidden memories and death drive reside. In other words, whatever happened in the past between Paul and Rosa just might lie beneath the sheet. Then again, maybe not. But either way, it is a great example of production design and filmmaking because it does not spell out or verbalise what it is. Instead, it visualises the enigma. Now consider how the Coen brothers repeatedly use an object that may or may not mean something significant. The hat in Miller's Crossing, the box in Barton Fink, and for Inside Lewin Davis. Explain the cat. Yeah, sorry. It's, uh, it's the Gorfine's cat. I crashed there last night. What's its name? Uh, I, I don't know. Last Tango marked Bertolucci's third collaboration with cinematographer Vittorio Storaro. But as sumptuous as Storaro's lighting, lensing and framing was, what I would like to acknowledge is the importance of camera operator Enrico Umitelli. So central was Umitelli to Storaro's visual scheme that Storaro engaged him as camera operator on no less than 29 pictures. Three of them would earn Storaro Oscars, Apocalypse Now, Reds and The Last Emperor. The only man who can live here is the Emperor. But the Emperor is on high, riding the dragon now. He died today. At various points throughout Last Tango in Paris, Umitelli executed crucial moves, but for very different reasons. At times, they simply traced the actor's movements, while at others, they refer to the film's theme. Take, for instance, the moment when Paul meets with Rose's mother, played by Maria Michi. She is sifting through Rose's things, looking for clues as to why her daughter took her own life. The framing has Brando on the left, with Michi on the right. They look at one another, and while they talk, the camera pushes in between them, so all we see is a door, which is marked Privé. Then, as if in defeat, Rose's mother steps in from the right, acknowledging that she will never know why. Elsewhere, the camera movement comments on characters' emotions. The opening shot shows a view of Paul standing on Pont de Biarracaine. As the train rumbles overhead, the camera swoops down from above. Paul screams into the air, his anguish drowned out by the echoes of the engine. It is a dynamic, arresting way to open the film and introduce us to Paul's character. It is a move Martin Scorsese also used about 20 minutes from the end of his black comedy After Hours, where Paul Hackett, played by Griffin Dunn, suffers an outlandish night in downtown Manhattan. What do you want from me? What have I done? Just a word processor for Christ's sake! 
Now let us consider the use of music in the film. The opening credits are positioned alongside paintings of Irish-born figurative artist Francis Bacon. We see the first three title cards, Alberto Grimaldi Presents, Marlon Brando in Last Tango in Paris. Only then does the music composed by Gatto Barberi begin. It sounds a minor matter, but the delay in introducing the music is not without significance. It means that we are acutely aware of the silence, and then, when Barberi comes in, we become acutely aware of its sounds. And that is how Bertolucci will use the music throughout the film. At times, it just floods across the soundscape, not so much complimenting as much as overwhelming the flow of events. But then, at one point, as the hotel maid, played by Catherine Allegrette, washes Rose's blood from the bath, we hear music. Paul looks out the window and sees a man in the building opposite. He is holding a saxophone and smiling down at a woman who appears to be unbuckling his belt. But then we see that she is actually sewing a button back onto his trousers. As she bites the thread, she turns and sees Paul. She stands up and the man begins playing his saxophone. What we assumed was extra diegetic music is in fact music coming from within the scene. That device is a technique that Bertolucci's idol, Jean-Luc Godard, often used to deconstruct film's grammar and vocabulary. Bertolucci does it here because he is not only making a movie, he is making a movie about cinema. Which explains why not only is Jean's boyfriend Tom, a film director who is making a documentary about love, but he is played by Jean-Pierre Léo, who by that stage in his career had starred in four films directed by François Truffaut, in which he appeared as Truffaut's alter ego. Here is Bertolucci in 1999, talking with Mark Cousins as part of the BBC series Shot by Shot about why he cast Marlon Brando. I didn't want the same Marlon, the fantastic Marlon we have seen in Waterfront of Zapata. Marlon, I want to get out of your face, take off from your face the actor studio Stanislavski Strasberg mask. Brando was 48 when he stepped onto Bertolucci's set in Paris. And as Bertolucci indicated, middle age had begun to appear in his face. And even though audiences had just seen and marvelled at Brando's portrayal of Vito Corleone, a mafia chieftain in his late 50s and well on the downward slope, here they were seeing a different aspect wearing very wearily on Brando's face. Certainly decades from the feral virility that had dazzled generations of filmgoers in the likes of The Wild One, Viva Zapata, On the Waterfront, and a streetcar named Desire. How long are you here for? Well, I don't know yet. You gonna, you gonna shack up here? I thought I would if it's not inconvenient for you all. Mm. Traveling wears me out. Well, take it easy. Not oh, those cats. In fact, looking at Brando in Elia Kazan's adaptation of Tennessee Williams' Pulitzer Prize-winning play, it is not all that difficult to imagine Stanley Kowalski growing into Paul in Paris. His energetic anger, misogyny and violence now curdling into the neurotic, isolated, despairing widower in middle rage. Even if a husband lives, 
200 fucking years. He's never going to be able to discover his wife's real nature. I mean, I... I might be able to comprehend the universe, but... I'll, I'll never discover the truth about you. Never. I mean, who the hell were you? As said, the film's opening credits are accompanied by Bacon's paintings. But when we see Paul on the bridge, we could also be looking at Edward Monk's The Scream, a face not so much painted as carved in strokes of existential terror. So, if Bertolucci did want to see Brando's real face beneath the Stanislavski mask, perhaps Brando himself also wanted to reveal something, to strip away the veneer of stardom, yes, but also show Caucasian masculinity as a flawed, frightened creature, cowering at the realisation of the chaos and cruelty so many of his ancestors had wrought upon other peoples. Here is Brando in 1973 on The Dick Cavett Show when he appeared alongside several members of the Cheyenne, Powit and Lumi tribes. When we hear, as we've heard throughout all our lives, no matter how old we are, that we are a country that stands for freedom, for rightness, for justice, uh, for everyone. Uh, it simply doesn't apply to those who are not white. Uh, it just simply doesn't apply. And we were the most rapacious, aggressive, destructive, torturing, monstrous people who swept from one coast to the other, murdering and causing mayhem among the Indians. There's one Indian in there. <laughs> All of which brings into consideration that Last Time in Paris might not be a pornographic excursion, but really is using sex as a means to examine colonialism. Jeanne's late father served with French forces in Algeria. Significantly, he died in 1958, the very same year Général de Gaulle moved to end the nationalist uprising in the then French colony. As for Jeanne's mother, more than a decade after his death, she maintains her late husband's uniform, neatly storing it in the house the walls of which are adorned by much African art. Then there is Jeanne's bigoted nanny, Olympia, played by Lucy Marcon, who claimed Jeanne's father had trained the family dog to, quote, recognise Arabs by their scent. Which may help explain why, at least on a thematic level, when Paul first encounters Jeanne in the apartment, he insists they know nothing about each other's pasts, neither their jobs nor their families, and most emphatically, their names. Why? because to name something is to begin to lay claim to it. But despite Paul's insistence on anonymity, he ultimately begins to dominate and occupy Jeanne's body. That explains, but again, in no way justifies the anal rape. Then, Paul tries laying claim to Jeanne's emotions and finally invades her family home. He ran through Africa and Asia and Indonesia. And now I found you. I love you. I want to know your name. To end, let's go back to the beginning, where the opening credits tell us that while Bertolucci wrote the screenplay, additional dialogue was provided by Agnes Varda. It makes me wonder what sort of film might have resulted had Varda written the entire screenplay, or indeed directed the film. Not only would the content have likely changed, but also the themes. Consider this, 
Tom is completely unaware that Jeanne is having sex with another man. In other words, Jeanne's life is hers and Tom is oblivious that she is living beyond his reach. Or how about Jeanne is not having sex with another man at all, just living a self-sufficient and fulfilling life without the need for Tom's presence or guidance. That tango might have made for an equally interesting film and in all likelihood it would have been a lot easier to watch. <laughs>